We've been looking at the book of Genesis together the last few weeks, so we're going to continue to do that. I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. As has been said, Genesis conveys profound truth in very simple language that even children can understand. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Behind this simple language is deep truth, which is revealed to us, is unfolded to us by the work of the Holy Spirit as we spend our lives studying it. That we might be that church that we've just sung about, that Word of God incarnate, that Word in flesh, that Word that is seen as as the world takes note of what God has intended, what God designs in His creation and how He is redeeming redeeming us. The world cannot live without that truth. It cannot live on lies. It might struggle along. It might stumble along as we're seeing today, but it is increasingly confused and angry and distraught. When it comes to God's Word, it is there that we find truth. It is the foundation upon which we live. I like what Alistair Begg says about the Word of God. He says, We know that the Word of God does the work of God by the power of the Spirit of God to create the people of God for the glory of God. I think that's very helpful to us. What is the Word of God doing? It is living and active. By the Spirit of God, it is transforming a people for God's glory. The source of truth is God's Word. Our culture has lost confidence in the idea of truth. Lost confidence in any ability to know anything at all, it seems. Even self-evident truths are questioned today. There's angst today, which earlier generations could never have imagined. Angst around creational givens. Those things which are clearly set before us. And one has said, and I think this is where we find ourselves, that truth today is not found upon examining God's world and His Word, but it's found more in opposition to other people. I was reading an article this week, and they said truth today is often settled upon, and truth, of course, in their terms, I put that in quotation marks, truth is often found by seeing what my political enemy believes and believing just the opposite, because that would be My truth. Well, that's no way to find truth. That's a way to continue to be stirred up in emotion, to feel alive because we're we're angry, and we're going to talk about that this morning as well. But anger is not that which brings the life, the righteous life that God desires. It's not that which, which makes us alive. The culture is selling that today, sending it out in sound bits and bites, telling us, well, this is how you know you're alive if you have anger, if your side is winning. But there is no life to be found in that, only death. There is truth, capital T. Jesus points us to where that truth can be found. When he's praying with his, uh, along with his disciples, he says this, Father, sanctify them by the truth. 
Your word is truth. It is there where life is found. It is there where the foundation for all of life is found and which leads us to know the way to joy and fulfillment. The psalmist says it over and over. Your word, O Lord, is truth. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in the fire seven times. A purity with no corruption therein. God's Word is truth. He defines truth. That's why Genesis is so important for us to come back to the beginning, to start at the right place. We start with God. Here we find the truth about everything. Creational study is theological. We saw last week, not scientific. There were no scientists there, but God was there. We rely upon His eyewitness testimony as to how He made things and what He made them for. Today we look at the created reality of man, male and female. This is a reality. It's not a social construct or something that a bunch of people somewhere in in the West settled upon. It is reality. It is God's beautiful and unalterable design. Genesis 1.26, God says this, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then Genesis 2 focuses in on that sixth day particularly focusing in on the creation of man and woman, and that's where we're going to pick up the reading this morning. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Give your full attention, for this is the reading of God's own word. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But... For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, for she was taken out of man, Ish. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So far the reading of God's own holy word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God, it stands forever. Dear people of God, I want to look at the past, present, and future realities of this text this morning. We begin with considering the setting, day six, the creation of man, male and female, the highest relationship that God has given in all of creation. Day six, God declares it is not good that man should be alone. There was something he still had to do. This is not a statement of something sinful in creation. It was a statement that God had something still to do, something more to reveal his good design. He said, I will make him a helper fit for him. In verses 19 and 20, there's this buildup. The, the, uh, the text tells us, and before man came these beasts, to, these creatures who were made out of the ground, even as Adam was made out of the ground, out of the ground God had formed every beast, and they paraded before man, and he gave them each names. And if we didn't know the account of creation, perhaps we would say, well, there's going to be some creature here somewhere made of that same origin who's going to be Adam's helper a helper fit. And yet then we read, Adam observes that there is not one. There is not one. He observes the animals. He names them. The end of verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. God's work was not done. There was no helper in the animal kingdom that would complete his plan. Verses 21 and 22 tell us then what happened. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The Lord was not finished in his creation when he created the male sex. He intended to create the perfect complement for him. Woman was not Identical to him, but she was a perfect complement, a helper fit for him. Taken from his side, she was not to be dominated by him. Taken from his side, she was not to dominate him. Taken from his side, she was to serve alongside of him in submission to him, in keeping with God's decree for the good of the world. Only together could man fulfill God's plan for the world. And this plan and this design have been under attack since the fall. So that is the past that we see this morning, the creational reality. This is how it was. God said, this is how it took place. Unfortunately, we live in a present insanity. Culture, the creational reality has not transferred into a cultural sanity, but sin has entered in and we have a present insanity. 
Perhaps we don't think we need to talk about this, about our, our sexuality. We think, well, we, it's pretty clear how this works, and yet God talks about it at the very outset of the Word of God. And when we see the world around us, we say, oh, indeed, we must be reminded of God's design. For we go astray. God wants us to embrace His Word and to teach it. We are to model it, to teach it, what it means to be made male and female in God's image. He created us that way, the creational binary we call that. To work in clear roles for the good of the world. The, I don't know if I want to get too much into this this morning, but the, the push today is a oneism, a paganism, a, a, an attempt to, to absorb God into creation and say He's just part of the creation and we are to make of Him what we can as He becomes more like us. In fact, the Word says something altogether different. It says, and God was, in the beginning, God already was from eternity, and He created the reality that we see, and it is not a part of Him, but that which He has spoken out. He creates us to live in that binary design for the good of the world, in purity, in all sanctity, and not distorting that good binary in any way, certainly not rejecting it for some oneism. How did we get here? Well, that's another sermon in the sense of how did we get to this place. But let me just say very quickly, in those verses about where the garden was located, you see all the minerals there. Verses 14, uh, 10 through 14, what, very quickly, what that's teaching is God placed in the world things to discover. There are resources. There are, there are uh, things for us to find and to, to use, and we call that technology. We, we take hold of things to make life more efficient based upon what we find in God's created order. And what we've done with technology today has gone off the rails and turned away from God and used technology to do things and to make things and to say things that God never intended for His world. And in this context of male and female, technology has made things possible which were never previously even considered, such that people now question their sexual identity because they can change their appearance through technology. And it's gone beyond that to where people won't even identify themselves as male and female. They say, I identify as non-binary. we're reminded that there's no book in the Bible, this is what Harry Reader says, and I've thought about this this week, and I'm, 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 I'm confident to say it, although I might, I might pull back a bit, but he says there's no book of the Bible that is more hated than the book of Genesis, there's no section more hated than Genesis 1 through 11, and there's no passage more important in that context than the passage we're looking at today, Genesis 2, 18 to 25. 
That's a pretty big statement. But as we look at the world around us, what is under attack is the very creational foundation from which life comes. And if that can be destroyed, which it will not, but if that could be destroyed, then all of life is going to look completely different. And that's the goal. To remove God, to remove His design, to remove any talk of purpose, and to then come to a new world. A new garden, if you will. Harry Reeder said, in summarizing, he was speaking at a conference I was at recently, he said this, what kind of culture are we in presently? And he gave five points, and I'm not going to look at those today, but I'm going to list them. He says, we're in a culture of insanity, absurdity, immorality, lethality, and profitability. And we can think about how all those manifest themselves in our culture today. We live in a culture of insanity, absurdity, immorality, lethality, and profitability. And at the heart of this is rebellion against God. The truth that humanity was created by a personal God with a purpose and design is being systematically uprooted in all aspects of our society, in schools, in churches, in courts, and by governmental decree. The result is that we don't talk about any future for humanity. We don't look at the eternality of humanity. We talk about the here and now and how we can reshape this body and how we can reshape reality or what we see, what we believe to be reality, at least until it changes tomorrow. There's no talk of heaven or hell. There's, that's by design. That reality is smothered. There's no future for humanity in that sense. They want to live here forever, and they want to live according to their rules forever. Not face the Creator who is judge. We care about the now, and anger is the sign of life for us. That's what the going emotion is these days, anger. Can I stir up anger? When that logarithm was put into our social media accounts, the creators soon realized that that got followers engaged far more than anything they had tried to that point to make people angry. The media is controlled by those who reject the Bible and it lives to feed our anger, to, to, as it were, give us life, make us feel alive, quote-unquote. We tell ourselves we live for today because there is nothing else. And we live however we want because we're told there's no right or wrong, only authenticity and inauthenticity. But there is wrong, and God declares what that wrong is. It's when we disobey Him. It's rejection of God and of His commands and of His design. And this rebellion doesn't bring happiness or satisfaction. The peddlers of this understanding of the so-called social influencers today are aimed at the most, most vulnerable of our population, namely our children, those least developed to process what is coming at them 24-7 in the form of sound bites, easily digestible, easily deceptive, 
and ultimately destructive. And because our nation has turned from God, we're ruled by those who are simple in their own minds. Foolish, that is. I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 1 if you want to see that. I'm going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 1 or or referencing Isaiah chapter 1. What's happening there? Well, the nation of Israel is a picture, uh, a, a, a subset of, of creation. God is saying, These are my, this is what it looks like when redemption takes place. This is, this is what people are to, to do and to be and how they're to respond to me. And he shows the nations what it looks like to live for the Lord. And he shows them what it looks like to not live for the Lord and to be disciplined as a result. And so Israel is set as that example. And the church, too, is that example before the world. How do we live? Well, the people of God were not living for God, and God was saying, well, it will not go well for you. I've said that from the very beginning. If you disobey, you shall surely die. Nations full of sin, chapter 1, 4 tells us, the rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. They love bribes. They love their position rather than the truth, chapter 1, verse 23. The land is full of idols, chapter 2, verse 8. And then chapter 3 says this, and this is where I want us to to, to think for a moment. Listen to chapter 3. Behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor and the skillful magician, and the expert in charms, all those to whom the people were looking for protection. And he says this, And I will make boys their princes, and infants shall rule over them, and the people will oppress one another. Everyone his fellow, and everyone his neighbor, and youth will be insolent to the elder. They will be boldly disrespectful to the elder, and the despised will be boldly disrespectful to the honorable. They're ruled by those who have no business ruling them, because they have not the character, the virtue, the understanding required for godly leadership, which is going to lead the nation in a right direction. In fact, it's going to lead the nation in a direction toward absolute depravity. Feeling, whatever I feel at the moment. No thought of consequence. Just give me now. I'm hungry. Now. The state of our universities, the state of our woke corporations, the state of many of our politicians fits into this description. Pressure is being exerted against the truth and those who hold it. Financial pressure, social pressure, psychological pressure. And this present sexual insanity has no connection to the clear creational reality. God made man, male, and female. There are programs now teaching young children that their biological sex, the sex that they're born with, doesn't mean that they are either male or female. They're told they should experiment with different pronouns to see what feels most natural to them, or if they prefer not to choose either identity. They're told to take hormones that alter the body's natural cycle to become what they identify as 
And parents are not allowed to know how they identify at school. That's the insanity of it all. Though it's very clear from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, how God has made us chromosomally XY and XX, male and female, physically male and female. And yet we know better. Because we now have technology. And we have psychology. And we have sociology. We don't need the Bible. Such thinking requires a response confessionally. That's why I'm so very thankful for this confession which has just come out. The New Reformation Catechism on Human Sexuality. There is much in here that will be helpful to the people of God. It has the shape and form of the Heidelberg Catechism question and answer format and addresses many of these issues. I was going to read from it this morning, but we don't have all that much time. But it's going to be available soon, and it is going to be a very helpful tool in bringing us back to the beginning as it pertains to this madness that we see today. Correcting our feelings by the Word of God. We might want to ignore this cultural moment, but we need to be living faithfully in it, teaching what God says about human sexuality. We need to teach this in the present because it matters for the future. That's where I want to look at thirdly. As we consider this issue, we need to ask, what is the role of the church? Are we social transformationalists? Are we out there trying to transform people's thinking on how they see themselves? Is that what we're advocating this morning? No, that's not what the church is called to be. We're called to be the Word of God incarnate. To show in our lives what it looks like to be living in light of God's design. We say, wait a minute, they said in Acts 17 that these men came and they turned the world upside down. What does that mean? What that means is when Paul was preaching the gospel and people were responding, everything was changing because the gospel was piercing their hearts, allowing them to see that things had happened way back in the very beginning which explained why they hated God and why they hated His design. And now it started to make sense as the Spirit came and poured out the truth upon their hearts, indicating to them, helping them to see, opening their eyes... To see that indeed they were living in rebellion to him. So it is the church which is to proclaim the gospel and all of the truth found in God's word. And as that word is received, society changes. And that is why the world wants the word of God to be eradicated and churches to be eradicated 
and the gospel to be called hate speech. Paul's mission was to turn sinners right side up, not turn the world upside down, but to turn sinners right side up through the preaching of the gospel and the commands of God. When we teach the word of God, when we teach the gospel, it all comes into focus. What's wrong with the world? I've said this before. G.K. Chesterton answered that question with two words, I am. And you are. And we are. Because we don't want to follow God's commands. We don't want to live according to His design. We want to find our own way naturally. And we need God to transform our hearts and our minds so that we might go back to the beginning where He has proclaimed what is true and then live in light of it. The Lord God has a plan for our design and we must proclaim it, male and female, in order to what? Be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1.28. He wants the earth to be filled with image bearers that point creation to Him. He wants the world, He created the world to be inhabited, He tells us in Isaiah 45. Even after the flood and punishment against sin, what does he say when he comes to Noah? He restates his, his plan. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Man is to reproduce. He gave man the gift of sex to be enjoyed in marriage with the purpose Production of more image bearers who would come into the world to sing his praise. And it's really right there in the beginning of Isaiah. Quoted some of the verses in Isaiah chapter 1, which showed how bad things had gotten among God's people. Even talks about how it was like Sodom and Gomorrah. But it says this in verse 9, interestingly. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, if he had not left a remnant, we should have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. In the midst of the warning of what sin creates, which is judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah, that picture of God's judgment upon the world. And for what? Immorality. In the midst of that, he says, I will preserve a people for myself. God preserves a remnant rescuing sinners from certain destruction to faith in Christ that their sins might be atoned for and their life set right. And friends, that is our joy and our confidence that in Christ all our sins are taken away. The Spirit is given that we might believe and that we might see rightly that the future might be bright, that there might be more image bearers brought into the world from marriage between one man and one woman. And we are to be those who respond in this way, having heard the Word of God. The Lord says in Isaiah 1 a bit later, My people shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent 
By righteousness, verse 27. What's he talking about there? Well, he sends his justice upon the Lord Jesus Christ that we might not have to bear it, for if we did, we would be destroyed. And he gives us Christ's righteousness so that in him we might enter into heaven. And you are privileged to hear God's word that your eyes and ears might see and hear the truth and live by it as he works in you by his spirit, making you to understand how God created all things, male and female, young people, God created sex good. It is good in marriage between a man and woman for life. That future generations might rise up and bless his holy name. There's no fruitfulness from a partnership of two men or two women. The lie of Satan says this, you can express your desires however you want. But the woman was made from man by a direct creative act of God. Verses 21 and 22 tell us in Genesis 2. She was brought to the man, verse 22. The Lord brought the woman to man. Man didn't have to see everything parading forward. God said, this is my good plan for you. And the man got it. Verse 23. The man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is good. And God then declares His design for the future of this blessed relationship. Verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He shall shall leave and cleave for life, that they might be one. Husband and wife make their relationship the priority of their lives, second only to their relationship to God. I don't want to start preaching my wedding sermon for Saturday. I'll stop now, but that's in there. They covenant to be one flesh for life. This is the definition, one definition. Marriage is a total commitment and a total sharing of the total person with another person until death. What a blessing when that relationship of the two becoming one is the two becoming one in submission to God. Marriage is His plan for all, believer and unbeliever alike. But what we see in that marriage that puts God first is God's wondrous design for the world. We remember that family unit today, the vital role that mothers play in it. And we give thanks for godly mothers. Those who sacrifice, those who seek to obey God's commands and to teach them to their children. This is the way of human flourishing, male, female, submitting together under the Word of God to raise children to love God.
to obey His design and His commands that are given to them. Children, you are called to obey your parents. Writer of Proverbs says, Keep your father's commandments. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. We do that in community. God gives us help. We know that we do not do it perfectly and therefore we proclaim Christ Jesus for in Him we find forgiveness for all of our sins in this area and in all others. For He is the one who gives us that model of what it looks like to submit to God. He laid down His life, not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but taking on flesh that He might take the curse that you and I deserve that we might be delivered that we might live not in anger which is not the righteous life that God desires that does not identify where life is found but in joy and satisfaction as we submit ourselves to God's good design what a joy to hear the professions of faith today and That is a statement too. To God's faithfulness, to His promises, and to His wonderful provision of godly parents who teach their children. And we we must pray that God would continue to bless our homes with His Spirit that we might speak the foundational truths so that we might look back to the past, see the good way, and walk in it as Scripture tells us that we might live in faithfulness in the present in the midst of all of this insanity as we set our eyes upon that future glory which is kept for us in Christ who submitted Himself perfectly that we might live. May God give that to us in our homes and in all of our relationships. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to be lights. We want to be salt. And so often our lights are dim. The salt has lost its saltiness. Our desires, our feelings dictate to our minds. And soon truth is lost or is muddied. And we are turning in all different directions but to the truth. We are reminded that even as those who are redeemed, we need to be forgiven. We need to repent every day of sin. Knowing that forgiveness is given in Christ, complete and full. And then we are those who go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit, your Spirit, to make much of you. We thank you for the models of that godliness that we see around us. May we see that godliness being instilled and maturing in those who are younger, that there might be yet more generations who rise up and praise your holy name. The goodness of your creation, the greatness of your redemption, and the glory of your love. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.